Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I wouldn't vote for a woman, Andre, in this circumstances. A daft question. Arlene Foster, Michelle O'Neill, Naomi Long. There have been many women in powerful positions in Northern Ireland, but that wasn't always the case. And I don't know where the honourable lady has been living in some cuckoo land of her own. Sit down and stop wasting time. From 1996 to 2006, Northern Ireland had a political party with a difference. It was a party for women. Just for women. Avla Kilmurray said, why don't we go out and discuss the possibility of running our own party? And we realised that the logistics were possible. In 1998, two of its members, co-founder Monica McWilliams and Jane Morris, were elected to the Assembly. We have no women MPs, we have no women in Westminster or indeed in Brussels. So we've made all these changes in Northern Ireland's democracy. They aren't representative of the decent Ulster woman that I speak to. The Ulster woman in the past has seen herself very much as being in support of her man. Hostility, misogyny and some outright abuse. The Women's Coalition endured many brutal experiences but paved the way for women in politics in Northern Ireland. We needed to make sure that we were there to try and bring about the change that was needed to move the society forward. So without thinking of the consequences, people put their hands up. In this episode of The Bell Tell, I interview Monica McWilliams on the party that changed the political landscape of Northern Ireland forever. How did the Women's Coalition come about? Well, we had lots of networks in place for the previous 25 years. There had been a very strong women's movement in Northern Ireland from the mid-70s, which campaigned for the extension of the Sex Discrimination Act that was only in England and Scotland and Wales. And the Labour government at the time had said, religion is the problem and political identity in Northern Ireland. It's not a problem on sex discrimination. And so we rose up, as women do, and said, well, actually, there is a lot of discrimination here against women on both sides. And we succeeded. And so anyone that thought and said, as they did, when the Women's Coalition was formed, did these women fall out of the sky? Where were they when the war was being fought? And one leader, as I say in the book, who later became the Deputy First Minister, 
um, she was smiling actually and probably regretted it afterwards, said they're a cult and they'll grow in on each other and disappear. Another leader, Peter Robinson, is also on record as saying the good women of Ulster, you know, are housewives. They do not engage in politics. They aren't representative of the decent Ulster woman that I speak to. The Ulster woman in the past has seen herself very much as being in support of her man. As far as those individuals representing the women's coalition is concerned, I think that uh, people will draw their own conclusions by the fact that they're prepared to come out of a closet now. And so we were shocked at hearing these things when the Women's Coalition was formed. The women came from all walks of life. So I, in particular, had come out of the civil rights movement um, as a very young teenager, then the women's rights movement, and in particular working on domestic violence. And then other women came in from all backgrounds, business, trade unions, some were at home as mothers and, and partners. Others were carers. Some were unemployed. But they wanted a different type of politics. And they were fed up with 30 years of violent conflict. They wanted politics to work. Um, and they, like me, wanted to see more women in that process, knowing what we had done over those years in a voluntary capacity um, at the interfaces. And in very difficult times, women were crossing over the peace walls and crossing over in rural areas to talk to each other. We cut our political teeth in many different social movements, but many were not in political parties, but some were. So that's why we called ourselves a coalition, because we said to women in other parties, come join us. So we were a very broad movement, um, but it worked. And for that reason, because we came from all walks of life and from very different communities, British, Irish or both, and some who didn't want to identify any longer um, with that binary. The, it worked because we worked hard at creating consensus long before others who were in single identity parties managed to do that. And do you think the goals of the Women's Coalition were achieved? Well, indeed they were, but it took a much longer time to achieve it, that very first one. Um, someone described it as a contagion effect that um, the other parties, by simply getting contagious as if it's a disease, suddenly realised that they needed to do something. And so the women in the other parties actually told us afterwards that they got promoted within their parties, that they started affirmative action within those parties because of the Women's Coalition, either because we were a threat and people could see that how effective it was when you had women in decision-making roles, or it was for opportunistic reasons, that for a party to look like it represents the people it comes from, you need to have some women there amongst the what there's now known as a mantle which is an all-male panel. And so I, all of us were fed up watching male peel and steel and we wanted something different. And and in particular, younger women also being given a voice. Um, you know, feminism had crossed the Atlantic from the States, um, came much later here um, because of the troubles, because there was the focus on the constitutional issues. Um, but we did say that, you know, women's rights are human rights and these are constitutional issues also. Um, so we we realised that many of the movements that we'd been involved in were very male-dominated, particularly at the higher levels, even though the women were doing all the work as usual behind the scenes. And we felt that isn't good enough if there's going to be a peace process. And there had been many 
peace processes, but the one that was at that time being focused on were the multi-party peace talks. And we figured that we had the experience of working on the ground with the expertise of skills and capacity that we'd built along the way. So why shouldn't we be at the table? And do you think the overall message of the party is still as relevant today as what it was when the party was formed? Well, that message will never go away. The message was stand up and speak out, which is the title of the book, because women have been so accustomed to being told as I was to shut up and sit down. And so the message from the coalition was that we had very important things to say. We had the right to say them. Um, We had been elected in our own right. We had a mandate. Um, But also, it's not just that you need to be in mainstream politics. You can be in informal politics, in community groups, in organisations, in NGOs, in business community, trade union organisations. In all of those, you need to have women represented and have a place for them to participate in the very important decisions that are being made. So that's the message. And I think we were successful, though at the time we wouldn't have known that. As I said, we in the book, we were more ostracised than applauded. I don't know who the lady is. She's not even a delegate. Uh, yeah, she speaks. But I never wanted to be remembered for how the men behaved badly, though I do record it because it was said publicly, it was said in television, it was said in the chamber of elected representatives, the humiliating insults that we internalise sometimes inside our heads and ask, what did I do to cause that? And you you said there that you publicly faced a lot of sexism during your time as a politician. How did you deal with that? Well, I also say in the book that for me, the reality was going home to my children. And I tell a very funny story where um, someone in the public chamber had called me a a silly woman. Um, And that was the usual nonsense to, you know, be really downgrading the things you were saying all the time to make you feel that you didn't have the right to say them. And so my young son one night, I was putting him to bed when he was only about six and it was very bright outside. It was a summer evening. And he said, Mom, that's terrible what that... The politician said to you today, because he'd seen it on television, which is also hurtful for a mother to hear that her son is taking this stuff in. And he said, and I don't agree with it. But he said, you are very silly putting me to bed at this hour of the night. And I started laughing. And I realized, you know, this is reality. This is the life that you you, you live. Um, how else did I deal with it? I dealt with it the way the other women dealt with it. I wasn't the only one being subjected to these insults. There was enormous solidarity. If you want to say sisterhood, it was there. And, you know, no one woman can can survive in such an environment by herself unless she has the support of others. Um, and that was a strong message that I wanted to get across in the book, that we were a team. And it was in the bad days and moments of crisis that we really um, put our arms around each other 
not just literally, but in every possible way. I would get phone calls. I, you know, we would support each other. We were from both sides of the community, so we were careful in ensuring that there was always two of us at every meeting so that there would never be a criticism that only one political identity was being represented. So there was lots of tactics, and we had thought it, thought it through, and we had a vision of where we wanted Northern Ireland to be, and if it was going to stop the, the, the violence on the streets, it had to stop the attitudes that led to women in their homes also being subjected to violence. It had to stop the attitudes that stopped women from going into public life. Um, so there were many reasons why we'd come together. But also it was beyond the gender-specific issues. We wanted Northern Ireland to be a place where our own children could thrive, not just thrive. And we wanted them to remain in Northern Ireland and not to be emigrating for jobs. And we wanted the next generation coming behind us to say, we'll never go back there. And, and there were many different ways that we had to concentrate on getting there. It was about the way we would be governed, but it was also about safety and police and security and the reforms that were needed. It was about economic and social security. Um, it was about reparations for victims. So there were many things that needed to be added to that agreement that was not just around the constitutional issues. Because there were so many women from so many different backgrounds, was there any time you really clashed on things? We could have. There were many discussions, but I remember a few. There was the issue of strip searching um, in prisons, um, and we turned that into a women's rights, human rights issue that um, wasn't being done without good reason. Was it done as a form of power and control to humiliate the women? Um, and there was a clash of interpretations. Some felt that if those women had been in prison and sentenced for what they had done, then they deserved what was coming to them. Um, the others, and I was one of those who said that any civilized society deserves to treat people inside prison in a civilized way. The, the culture that you grow up in, it's conservative, um, it's, it's patriarchal, um, but you as a young woman then feel extra humiliated if you're expected to take your clothes off uh, and be searched for no other reason than, you know, it's being done to every woman who has come in from that particular political background. And so that, as you can imagine, was a very difficult issue, not just in the 70s, but when we were um, forming the coalition in the 90s. The, even the issue of having a Bill of Rights, what would be in it, um, and that debate still goes on today, we deliberated on that. Um, and again, there were different views. Um, but we came to consensus that it was needed. Um, and the other issue was changing our designation at a later stage when First Minister-designate David Trimble couldn't get the votes um, inside the Ulster Unionist Party and he was short of three votes and we said that we would set a precedent and that Jane would redesignate from the other um, to unionist I would redesignate as nationalist for the period of six weeks which the rules allowed 
I met there were women in the coalition who said, that is what we have moved away from, as being described as nationalists and unionists in order to have our votes counted. And we don't like this. And myself and others had to advocate that this was better for the country. Even if the party was to get um, some opposition to this, we said that this will move us to the next stage of the peace process and it's worth sacrificing, even if we had to sacrifice the party. Now, you might ask, isn't that the most stupid thing for a politician ever to say? But we were different politicians. <laughs> we weren't necessarily there to stay in politics forever. Um, we actually wanted to make a mark for a short time and we knew that the day would come when we would wind up the coalition. So if we had a window of opportunity, take it and make a difference. Um, I do think in the book and in different things I've read about you and even speaking to you now, you are someone that put Northern Ireland before politics and I don't think other politicians could say the same confidently. Um, do you think you get recognised for doing that? Do you think you get enough credit for that? Well, I wouldn't say I put it before politics. I think politics is everything we do. <laughs> it's, you know, the schools that we have. It's the health service we have. So, but I put the the whole issue of Northern Ireland being at peace with itself, um, building a system of equality for all and a recognition and respect for human rights. That's what I would have put first. And that's how you resolve conflicts. Do we get recognition? Yeah, today we do, and perhaps it's always the case. You might get it more out of the country. And as a result of the film that Emer O'Neill made, um, Wave Goodbye to Dinosaurs, which the BBC put out, many years later, um, it, that's when the recognition started. Because more and more young students and young women and young men in school said, we didn't know that story. I mean, it was as if we'd disappeared off the face of the earth. I, I, none of us ever did it for the recognition. We did it because we had a vision of where we wanted Northern Ireland to be. Um, but at the same time, that's why I wrote the book. Because I said women end up as a footnote, no matter what they end up doing. Um, and Mo Molum is probably a good example of that. And I didn't like the derogatory way that others were writing about her. She was a breath of fresh air um, as the British Secretary of State. And there were women from the Irish um, government, Nora Owens and Liz O'Donnell, who needed to be recognised also for their role. And you have mentioned before that there's some politicians that um, were quite sexist towards you when you were a politician and are still in power now. Do you think they regret anything they said? Absolutely, I'm sure they do. Everybody changes. You don't come through a process like we do without reflection, perhaps without redemption. Um, and, you know, I'm, I no doubt have said things that I too regret. I didn't believe that certain things could happen and I had to be convinced that one day they would. Um, so, you know, you look back and you think, did I really say that? Um, and of course, at the time, it sounded perfectly normal. Um, it was abnormal. But, you know, you, you also need to put it in a, in a space where people were getting murdered and killed and very seriously injured. And I, we were getting psychologically injured, if you want to put it that way. The abuse was abuse. Um, but, you know, the, the, it was a bigger picture that you had to focus on. 
there was bigger things at stake here, like reaching a peace agreement. And so every day we would say, well, that happened. Now we have to deal with it, but let's get to the next stage. So we were constantly juggling how to call it out, but also ensuring that we got to our own policy issues and our own agenda and to ensure that we got those things into the peace agreement. You mentioned about your insult board. What were some of the things that you would have written up on that and would be on that? Um, And I'm sorry we didn't keep the flip chart. It was actually a flip chart and we put it outside our office. Um, And when I went to write the book, I couldn't find it because I'd kept so much. But probably because it was big pages, we didn't. It was all what was said on the floor of the Forum for Dialogue and Understanding, which I say in the book, we quickly renamed the Forum for Monologue and Misunderstanding. And it was the things that we were being told, um, traitors, um, the silly women, stupid women, um, stand by your man, um, um, we will teach these women good lessons. Um, and on it went. Those are the ones from memory. The list was long. But the clever thing was that we put the person's name and the date on it. And when they walked past, they'd say, I didn't say that. And we'd say, yeah, you did. Um, So there was something there about male bonding where one individual felt very proud of the fact and at liberty to stand in a public forum and say it. And all I could hear was the laughter of others sitting around them instead of standing up and objecting. Um, And so our tactic was to call it out. (laughs) It took decades later for a Me Too movement. But our little insult of the week notice board was our little attempt at a Me Too movement, which was to say, if you want to join us now and not repeat that ever again, then let this little notice board help you to do that. And it worked. Um, It also worked that we had champions in other places like Hillary Clinton calling it out and repeating what was being said because much of it was recorded in Hansard and it was really important that people got shocked that it wasn't just blasé as an everyday comment oh get over yourselves the one repetitive comment was if you can't stick the heat get out of the kitchen and we said this is not to do with heat This is to do with an unacceptable culture. And we're here because we are prepared to stick the heat of decent political debate. But when you stoop to this kind of level, then that's not what your kitchen should be built on. And, you know, at the time, I have to say to you that we seriously thought we should leave when it was getting pretty bad and it wasn't just verbal it was physical Um, and the decision was taken no don't do that it's really important that the public see this that it's caught on radio TV and journalists and print journalists are writing about it and editorials then started writing women must stay strong And, and they started reporting it and when that happened it also began to frizzle away it didn't stop And behind the scenes where no journalist could be seen, it continued. But it wasn't in the public forum as much once it started being reported. 
coming more into modern day, do you think if the Women's Coalition was still a party now, they would kind of face the same problem that Alliance is facing at the moment with, you know, border poll questions and things like that? Oh, I'm certain about that. Because um, we did face those issues. You you're, were asked, if you don't have a stand in the constitutional issue, what are you doing in politics? Um, so I can see um, the dilemma that Alliance are in, but you will have to negotiate that. And that was our view, that at every stage you negotiate how you're going to deal with that. And the principle of consent was how we negotiated it then. And in a democratic society, that's how it'll be a negotiated again when it, any border poll is called. And I think Alliance as a cross-community party will have discussions and debates and dialogue and that's the most important thing of all. Not just inside with your membership but with other parties. So yes, we did face that. Though we had a very different stand than the Alliance party. Um, you know, we were not um, a party that that didn't believe in affirmative action, we did. And we believed that for those that were underrepresented, there should be quotas. We also believed that we needed to take a strong stand on some of those human rights issues that had been ignored for so long. Um, so, you know, we were, uh, we were a very different party. We also had, I would say, probably a majority of working class women in our party at the time, whereas they would have been identified then, not now, as coming from... Probably a predominantly unionist middle class background, but every party has its origins and it transitions into something different. Would we have transitioned into a people's coalition rather than a women's coalition, rather than standing down in 20, um, 10 years after we'd started 2006? Um, and we made the right decision. Your whole kind of campaign back in um, 1996 was you're getting rid of the dinosaurs and we're finished with the dinosaurs. Do you think there's still dinosaurs in Stormont? Well, dinosaurs can morph uh, rather than disappear. Um, some of them have left the scene. They've been called out. Um, and others have morphed. I have no doubt that many of those who are on record in my book have, have changed their views. I work with them now. I know they've changed their views. Um, and and I'm sure that they're a little hurt by the fact that I quoted them in the book, but it's on record of what they said then. I'm certain they wouldn't say it now. They have changed. Um, how much have they changed is the question. How fast have they changed? Will you and I be sitting here in another hundred years' time asking this question? Like, how long does this take? Um, but in my lifetime, I have... Um, seen enormous change, it's particularly around that issue that had such a stigma attached to it, domestic violence, which is really my life's work in terms of research and reports and the uh, policy making and legislation that I've been involved in changing and working alongside Women's Aid. I've seen massive change um, and still more has to happen. It's an unfinished business. And the same attitudes towards women in leadership positions and in public life are constantly changing. Yes, there are dinosaurs and we know who they are and they're not just in this country, they're in others. But what frightens me is when they get into really powerful positions and they push what we have worked so hard for, they push that back. So we have a, and my message would be to maintain and sustain and to keep building 
because you never know what's coming around that corner in terms of some of those dinosaurs suddenly appearing and getting voted into office. Um, the United States is having a huge crisis in this issue. Um, and likewise, in many European countries, um, the right-wing uh, politicians are moving into very senior leadership positions and they're not progressive on women's rights. So my message to younger women is, you know, sustain and maintain because we're past the baton on. So make sure you're there and ready to carry it. Monica, thank you very much. This episode of The Bell Tale was produced by myself, Jessica Rice, sound designed by Graham Davison. The clips you heard were from BBC, AP and UTV. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.